Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. We're in Hebrews chapter uh, 2 as we move on. And we're just going to look at two verses tonight. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And so let me just open up my Bible to that and uh, read that. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, or by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, as we look at uh, verse 9 of chapter uh, 2 of Hebrews, first place, uh, first time uh, in this book that Jesus is mentioned by name. Remember, all the way up to this point, uh, it's the son that's being talked about. And the son is introduced, as I mentioned here in these opening paragraphs. Uh, What we have basically is the culmination of the argument, verse 9. Up to this point is that the only one who can fulfill all that has been said to this point is Jesus. No other meets the requirements as argued in uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 14 and 2, 5 through 8. And if you remember uh, last week when we looked at 5 through 8, We read the end of chapter 1 and then skipped over to verse 5 of chapter 2, and you can see very easily the continuation of the thought, because 1 through 4 in Hebrews chapter 2 is a warning passage. So it's kind of like a parenthetical thought, if you will, of these Jewish professing believers warning them about going back to Judaism or Mosaism more correctly, Uh, leaving the faith and the judgment that would come as a result. They were not saved, they were just professing believers. So anyone, anyway, no other one meets this requirement as argued in 1, 1 through 14, which is all of chapter 1, and verses 5 through 8 of chapter 2. Uh, 1 through 3 and verse 9, but 1 through 3 especially of chapter 1, the Son, which we now are introduced to as Jesus, but we see Jesus, uh, is introduced as the Messiah, as the prophet, the priest, and the king. Three offices in the Old Testament, 
in the Old Testament times, one man would have officially only one office. It could be the office of king like David. And although David prophesied, he was not a prophet. He gave prophecies. He wrote prophecies. Look just uh, some of the prophecies he wrote about. But he was a king. Uh, a priest would not serve as a prophet. A prophet would not serve as a priest. So you are officially only in one office. <clears throat> Jesus, or the anointed one, who, and that's Jesus, the Messiah, uh, would occupy all three offices at one time. He would be the prophet, the priest, the king. That's how Hebrews 1 opens up with the prophet, priest, and king speaking of the son. Uh, from there on, it talks about the, him being the son of God, being God himself, being the creator, being eternal. Uh, all these verses here we looked at when we were in there, that he's the sovereign king in 113 and 257 and 8. Uh, all of these speaking of the son using prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. And ultimately this one who is all of these things, he's the Messiah, he's the son of God, he's God, creator, eternal, sovereign king, ultimately became man. He was made a little lower than the angels and was made a man. Uh, verse 9 of, of this chapter, <clears throat> um, as well as the last couple of verses. Verse 10, as we get to that, will pointedly uh, tell the recipients of this letter uh, that God required that the Son, Jesus, would, quote, unquote, lead people to heaven through his suffering. In other words, his death and his resurrection. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels, became man to suffer, die, in order that all people could have a chance to become God's children through faith. The thought is that to think of going back to mo what I call mosaism, and it's probably better than Judaism. Uh, Judaism didn't come on the scene until after the Babylonian captivity. It is the uh, religion of the rabbis. It's an admixture of mosaism and uh, rabbinicism, uh, rabbinical teaching. Uh, but at this point, it was more mosaism than it was uh, the rabbinic teaching uh, because they had, the, teach they had the, the temple, they had the sacrifices, they had all of these type of things that they could do that is not done today. Anyway, uh, Jesus made a little lower than the angels, uh, and the thought is that to think of going back to mosaism and, and rejecting God's sacrifice is just absurd. I mean, when you, when you were confronted in the first chapter, let alone chapter 2, of the uniqueness of the Son, that He is the Messiah, that He is God, the Son of God, Creator, Eternal, the King, the Sovereign, and so on, uh, it's, it's really absurd uh, to even think about going back to a religious system, even if that system was given by God. And it was. The Mosaic system was given by God. But you are giving up the God of glory, and the only one who has eternal life, that'll be the argument that 9 and 10 present uh, for a, a system of religion, albeit it came from God. Um, it's amazing today, even more so, I think, that some people will, will give up Jesus to go back to a religious system that's not from God. You know, at least Mosaism was from God. 
you know, the, the teachings of Moses and, and all of that. Uh, there's a lot of religious systems today that are not. So anyway, verse 9. We read it already. We'll read it again. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. But we see Jesus. I mentioned before, I'll mention it again. I think this is a great primer, beginning introduction for how to share Jesus with Jewish people. That's what the writer is doing. Uh, he is given prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, especially in chapter 1, from the Psalms, from different parts of the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible. And when you come down to verse 9, but we see Jesus. And the best way to share the Messiah, Jesus, with Jewish people, show them the prophecies, and especially Isaiah chapter 53. Now, the reason I think that Isaiah 53 is not shared in Hebrews chapter 1 is because the contrast that is being made in this chapter, which goes into chapter 2, specifically 5 through 8, is that Jesus is so much, or the Son, is so much better than the angels. And so why is the Son so much better than the angels? Well, he's the Messiah, yes. But he's the Son of God, he's God, he's creator, he's eternal, and so on. And Isaiah 53 more so speaks of his death and his resurrection uh, than any of those things. So today, uh, when you're presenting Jesus to a Jewish person, Ask him to read Isaiah 53. That's it. If you, if you have one with you or he goes home and, and ask him to uh, tell you who is this speaking of. And uh, almost invariably, the answer is Jesus. And uh, they might say something like, well, this is the New Testament. That's why it's speaking of Jesus. Uh, well, you just tell them, no, it's not the New Testament. It's the Jewish Bible. So anyway, it starts out in verse 9. After all of this stuff that's been laid down, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Now, we looked at that last week in more detail when it talked about, basically, it speaks of his coming into this world as a man and ultimately to die for the sins of the world. Um, <clears throat> it's the promises of the Old Testament coming to fruition, the Lord himself becoming a man. And, and when we looked at it, Last week, you know, because earlier on, chapter 1, it said that Jesus is better than the angels. So how could he be made a little lower than the angels? We had to be made a little lower. He had to become a man to, to, um, uh, to I'm not sure, I don't want to say earn, to capture back, uh, to get back what man lost in the garden. And what man lost is dominion. And Jesus coming will get that dominion back and all those children of his that, that, that come in by faith into the family will have dominion one day as co-heirs with him. So he was made a little lower than the angels by becoming man to die for the sins of the world, resurrecting obviously, that ultimately he could recapture, win back um, the dominion that man lost in the garden when they sinned. 
uh, and we've talked about that many, many times through the, through the months, years of this study, uh, because ultimately then who became, uh, we've probably talked about it last week, who became the god of this world? Satan. Satan. Kingdoms of the world, and since the fall of man belonged to whom? Not man. Satan. And one day those kingdoms will re be returned uh, uh, back to the Lord, and those of us who are heirs with him, we will then have dominion with him over all kingdoms of this world. That's the seventh trumpet judgment. We talk about that, you know, when, when the trumpet judgment is, is blown in, in Revelation 11, it says, now all the kingdoms of this world have become our lords. Well, if they become at that point, trumpet, that means they belong to someone else prior to that. That someone else was Satan. And, and, and that, I think there's a lot of reasons, um, certainly pastors, uh, people in the full -time, called full-time ministry, should in no way get entangled uh, in the political system. Because they've been called to another political system, if you will. They are serving in God's kingdom. We've looked at that before. Uh, the world's kingdom, political systems, is run by Satan. So there's no way pastors, and unfortunately through the years you find many pastors wanting to get involved in, in politics, um, and they're really taking a step down. I don't care if you have a church of 50 people or 25 people. If you step down from that to become a state senator or a, a, you know, president of the United States, it's a step down. It's not as much glory, but it's a step down if God's called you to be that. Now, that doesn't mean a, a layperson can't go into the political world, but you don't go into the political world, and we've discussed this before, to change the system. You're never going to change it. It belongs to Satan. And, and, and it will belong to Satan until ultimately the Lord comes back. And so every political system ultimately destroys itself. History has shown that. The Bible teaches that. Um, I don't want to digress too much uh, on that at this point, but he was, he was made a little lower, became a man to die for the sins of the world, to ultimately capture that he would be, he'll become the king and those of us who are heirs with him will rule and reign, and man will have that dominion again. And that dominion will primarily lie with the God-man, Jesus. <clears throat> so he was made a little lower than the angels. We know he was made a little lower than the angels. There's all kinds of prophecies that he would become a man. Micah 5.2, born in Bethlehem. And uh, it, it certainly is... is Excellent to memorize these type of prophecies. Uh, but thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though there be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. But if you don't memorize it, at least the, the verse, at least memorize the, um, the address and what it's about. Jesus, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. So where do you find that? Micah 5.2. So if you have a Bible, you can always... And again, it's always better to memorize the passage than just the address. 
but the very least we should put the memory where we can find things. So when somebody comes up to you and you're asked to defend uh, Jesus being born in Bethlehem, you can say, well, well the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, spoke of it. But there's also a lot of stuff there that would be excellent, like his goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. That's a great passage for the deity of Jesus. His goings forth have been from eternity past, from everlasting. And you could couple that uh, with Psalm 90 in the first couple of verses when it talks about the Lord God who, and his goings forth is from everlasting. Same, same Hebrew word that's found in um, um, chapter uh, uh, 5 of Micah. Thank you. So, and, and, and I hope I didn't misquote that as, uh, as Yvonne's looking up the passage. I think it's Psalm 90. Are you looking it up? So, oh, you're looking at Micah, so I'm pretty certain it's Psalm 90. Um, yeah, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. From everlasting is the is, uh, same phrase that's used in Micah 5, 2, about the one born in Bethlehem. Yeah. <clears throat> 90 verse 2 and you could even start in verse 1 Lord thou has been our dwelling place in all generations and Lord there is Jehovah before the mountains were brought forth or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world even from everlasting to everlasting thou Jehovah art God and so from everlasting is the same Hebrew phrase that's used in Micah 5 2 and where it says this one born in Bethlehem whose goings forth doesn't mean his coming into the world, just means his, his activities, as it were, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Well, if you're from everlasting, you're what? From eternity past. So this God, Psalm 91 and 2, Jehovah is from eternity past, but this one born in Bethlehem is from, and he's born, which makes him what? He's coming out of Bethlehem, which makes him man. But yes, he's man, but he, his goings forth are from when? From when he came out of the womb? From eternity past, from everlasting. The only one from everlasting is God. Psalm 91 and 2. God's, Jehovah's going for, is from everlasting. Now, when God creates mankind, not animals, dogs are, your, your, your pet schnauzer is not going to be in heaven with you. you know, I don't want you to get too upset. So, you know, he, he won't be there or she won't be there. But all of God's humankind, all humankind, we are created everlasting into the future. There is no, um, what's the word, annihilation that some would teach. All humans live forever. Some to life everlasting and some to death and destruction, hell. But they're still alive. And so we live everlasting in the future, but we're not from 
eternity past. It's only God. Uh, so he became a man, born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin. Another place where you can tie in the humanity of the Messiah and the deity. Because it talks about a virgin will have a child, right? And what shall his name be called? Emmanuel. God with us. A virgin giving birth to a son who will be God with us. Isaiah 7, 14. And then Isaiah 9, 9 6, the son of David, talks about him being the son of David. Uh, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now right there, by the way, you have, you capture his humanity and deity. For unto us a child is born speaks of what? Humanity, because you're born. For unto us a child is born and a son is born? Given. <clears throat> Which son was given? For God so loved the world that he gave. So Isaiah 9, 6, you have the humanity and the deity in that one verse, that one phrase, for unto us a child is born, a son is given. It goes on and tells us about that child. The government will be upon his shoulders, uh, and his name will be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and talks about him being from um, the... Uh, the throne of David, or sitting on the throne of David, which again means that he has to be human. So there's just so many scriptures that teach that, that uh, the Messiah, when he comes into the world, will be very God himself, but will become man. That's what this is speaking about here. So he was made a little lower than the angels. He was better. He's God himself, all of chapter 1. But he was made a little lower than the angels because he had to ultimately redeem mankind, suffer and die, and ultimately to uh, recapture the dominion that was lost. And uh, it doesn't hurt. We did a lesson, um, a power, I don't know, a year ago, maybe less, maybe last summer, I don't remember. You know, don't miss the forest for the trees, remember that? Um, and the whole point of that was, um, you know, sometimes we get so focused in on one thought or one thing, one truth, whatever, it could be a truth, that we miss the bigger picture. And the whole thought was, don't miss the forest for the trees, that was, and, and trying to understand the big picture of the Bible. And, and there's three different, there's two different ways, three parts each, where the Bible runs. By the way, I'm putting this in writing for the next issue of the magazine, just you know, for what it's worth. Um, and the whole, the title or, or the front of the magazine will be, uh, History is His Story. Anyway, if you remember, there were, in the garden, prior to the fall, uh, you had a, a theocracy. What's a theocracy? God ruling over, directly over man. So, you had a theocracy. You also had, man had, dominion. When God created, God said he, he gave them, to mankind, dominion over everything. And also, you had in the garden a, a what? A perfect environment. 
There was no, you didn't need an, a Greenpeace around then. You didn't need um, environmentalists then. Because you had, it was a perfect environment. Well, when man rebelled, when man sinned, Adam and Eve, um, they lost the theocracy, they lost dominion, and they lost the perfect environment. So where is history going? It's going to the restoration of all three of those things. One day again, there will be a theocracy on planet Earth. And Jesus sits in Jerusalem, ruling from the throne of David over all of mankind. Now, there's limited theocracy since then. Israel was a theocracy. And in that theocracy, God, you know, I don't want to go too far down this road. Anyway, so there'll be the restoration of the theocracy. But there'll also be the restoration of dominion. This is part of what we're talking about here, that ultimately that rule that God had given to man will be returned to man, uh, primarily in the person of Jesus, but also to those of us who become heirs of salvation, which we're getting into. And we will be co-heirs, co-regents, co-rulers with Jesus. But dominion will be returned to the Lord be, and, and take it away from whom? Satan, who's the one that caused the loss of the dominion. So, and then there's going to be the perfect environment, the restoration of nature and that. Too. So that's the broadest picture you can get in following where history is going. In chapter 12 of Genesis, God narrows it down even further. And he narrows it down in chapter 12, bringing Abram into the picture and promising to Abram that there will be a land, a seed, and a blessing. And that's the narrow focus of God's plan, which is more, it's no, it's no less true, no more important than the broad focus of God's plan, that he is going to restore the theocracy, restore the dominion, and restore the perfect environment. But that's a broad picture. The narrow focus is what he's going to do through Abram, Abram that became Abraham, but that promise continued through whom? Isaac and Jacob. So the land revolves around Israel, the land of Israel, the seed around the Jewish people and the greater seed of the Jewish people, Jesus. And the blessing portion is what? All families of the earth will be blessed. Salvation, Jew and Gentile. That's the more narrow focus. Um, why did I get onto that? I don't know. But anyway, I think because I was talking about dominion. Uh, maybe that was what. But that, so don't miss, the for, don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't get hung up on the, the minutia of life, as important or unimportant that it might be, and miss the bigger picture. Um, I, I, we're not there, but let's go. Uh, go with me to Hebrews chapter 12, because it fits. Um, and we're not there. We'll be there at two verses of Bible study. We'll be there by <laughs> the middle of the tribulation period. Uh, um, hopefully, we'll move faster than two verses. Um, chapter 12 of Hebrews. And we're just going to look at this really quick without breaking it down. Verse 1 talks about these great cloud of witnesses and so on running the race. 
Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And then look at the last part of verse 2, starting in the middle. Who, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, and the challenge, verse 3, and I don't want to go too far in this, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Consider Jesus, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. This is the recipe for getting through the tough times in life. When Jesus, was Jesus, who is the author and finish of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, now hold that phrase in your mind for a moment, endured the cross. Was he looking forward to the cross? No. When you endure something, are you, I can't wait to go to the dentist so I can be shot up with that needle and get the Novocaine and he can yank my tooth out and I can be in pain for the next eight hours. I just can't wait for that. Is that how you look at going to the dentist? No. You endure it. You go, you know, I went to the dentist Monday and I, because I'm, and he drilled, you know. He shot me up, and then he drilled. And, and, and then he screwed something in. Um, and he's, and, you know, and... Oh, my. I, I did not look forward to it. But I am looking to the end of this whole procedure when I can chew, chew food on my left side of my mouth. But anyway, that's all. I have, I have, anyway, I don't want to get too much into my teeth. Um, Jesus endured the cross. He didn't look forward to it. He wasn't excited about it. And then he did what? He despised the shame. You know, hanging on the cross was shameful in that society. He didn't care. He didn't care. He despised the shame that came with it. He didn't care that in the eyes of, uh, of the people around that he was less than righteous. He despised the shame that came with it. Why did he do it? Go back to that phrase. They say, for the joy that was set before him. Now, a couple of possibilities and what this joy is. We won't get into both of them, but uh, certainly could be both of them too, by the way. Uh, not just one of the two. But what was the joy? He knew the end of the process. What was going to happen? And even before he's crowned with glory and honor, he's coming up out of the grave. And when he comes up out of the grave, what's he going to do? He's going to be bringing sons and glory, sons and daughters ultimately into glory with him because of his he, he was looking at the end result. I'm coming out of that grave. I'm going to be sitting at the right hand of the Father. I'm going to bring lots of people to heaven with me because of what, so I can go through this for the joy that was sent before me. Because when one sinner repents, what do the angels in heaven do? There's joy. They rejoice. So Jesus endured what he was going through because he looked at, to the end result. When you're going through trials, don't miss the forest because of the tree. 
Don't let the forest, the tree, excuse me, consume you. Look at the end result. Look at the bigger picture. Understand what God is. is. So it fits in with what we're talking about. I think I digressed a lot here. But anyway, it, it fits in with the dominion and where we're going in the world and, and, and how to get through all of this stuff. So Jesus had to become man uh, for all that was talked about. Uh, but the next phrase, for the suffering of death. Why was he made lower, a little lower than the angels? For the suffering of death. God can't die. God's eternal. God is spirit. And so in, in order to bring us back to him, to bring mankind back to God, he had to be made, Jesus had to be made man. Had to be made a little lower than the angels. Why? To suffer death. To die for the sins of the world. For the suffering of death. I put it here, why did God need to become man? So he could pay the sin debt we owe. See, if, if Jesus wouldn't have done that, we would be in the most desperate of, of, of straits, all mankind. Uh, we would have no hope. We'd have no eternal life. We would have nothing but the, 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 lake, the, uh, the, the lake of fire to look forward to. Yes, uh, you, know, you know, he had to become a man. Why? He needed to be the eternal, perfect, efficacious, means what God accepted, sacrifice, which was required by a holy God. See, no one is perfect. Ecclesiastes 7.20. There's not a just man upon earth that does good and sins not. There's not one just man that does good and doesn't sin. You can take the best person you know, Bob. He sins. He, he just sinned right now when he said no. He sins. Ask, Don, ask, ask Donna later. Ask Donna later. She'll tell you. Everyone will die. You know, in, in Ezekiel 18, 20, uh, the soul that sinneth shall what? Die. I've asked people before who I, you know, you've you got to get someone lost before you can get them saved. And, and you gotta, they've got to see they're a sinner before they're going to come to a Savior. And uh, I, I've told you a story, especially that one old lady, older lady, I'm probably older than she is now, but, or was, but anyway. I couldn't get this woman lost for any, I tried everything I could think of. Ten Commandments, you know. And, and finally, I, I, I just said, you're going to have to make a choice. Either you're lying or God is lying. That's what I told her. And if you're lying, you're a sinner. If God is lying, everything we're talking about is not anyway. Uh, no one is perfect. We all sin. And I tried that. If you die, you're going to be a sinner. Uh, blood sacrifice is required. Leviticus 17.11. A uh, perfect sacrifice is required, Isaiah 53, 9, uh, when it talks about he, he, he knew no sin. Uh, <clears throat> that's from 1 Corinthians, but also in Isaiah 53, essentially. He, we need a substitute, the rest of Isaiah 53. Jesus had to suffer and die for the sins of the world. Ultimately, he will be crowned 
with glory and honor. And this is the other side of the grave. This is the resurrection and ultimately the ascension. In his humanity, he humbled himself unto death, Philippians 2. Thus God exalted him and honored him. Now, we're not going to look at all these verses because um, we got four pages to get through. And uh, so I'm glancing at the clock. But I do want to talk about something because it's in the text. It's the next phrase. That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. You can look at almost, I don't know, I, I presume every translation out there, and it says he will taste death for every man. Uh, that's, the, that's the King James. The New King James uh, might taste death for everyone. The NIV might taste death for everyone. The ASV. He should taste death for every man. The, the uh, Young's literal translation, the YLT, that for every one he might taste of death. The New American Standard, the NAS, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The RSV, the Revised Standard Version, uh, that he might taste death for everyone. And the NLT, which is a very, very um, bad translation. It's more of a paraphrase. Uh, I'm trying to remember what I looked it up um, again. Um, just that's I can't. It's a very the new the new living translation. Thank you. It's it's terrible translation. But even they get it right. Jesus tasted death for everyone in all the world. And and the, the verse is very very clear um, that he Jesus by the grace of God should taste death for every person, every one, every man in, in the generic sense. So his death, Jesus' death, was God's gracious free gift to everyone, to all. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Ephesians 2.8.9, uh, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourself, gift of God, and so on. Uh, and I've got these verses right down here. He died for all. Now, I, I want to cover something, uh, the, the second page. Uh, Jesus died for every man. That's clear in the scripture. 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, believers, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He died for the whole world. Not just for believers, he died for the whole world. 1 Timothy 4.10, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. He's the Savior of all men, but uniquely or uh, for those who put their faith in him, those who believe. Now, I, I want to talk about limited atonement. Um, I hope you've heard about limited atonement. We're not going to talk about Calvinism. I only put Calvinism down here, just presuming that there may be someone here or a few people who don't know what Calvinism is all about and what it teaches. Calvinism is generally around what they call the tulip. And the tulip, each letter stands for something. The T for total depravity. The U for unconditional election the L for limited atonement, the I for irresistible grace, 
and the P for the perseverance of the saints. I want to consider limited atonement. And there are many, many Calvinists who are not, who, who are not five point. If you, if you believe in the tulip, you're a five point Calvinist. Is this foreign to some of you? Some of you, okay. I thought it would be. If you're, if you're a, how do I put this? If, if, if I don't want to look full blown. Um, if you're a, if, if, see, because there are Calvinists who are not five point Calvinists. That's what I'm trying to drive at. Um, but there are many Calvinists live and die by the five points of, of, of Calvinism. The tulip. They believe all of these. But there are many, many Calvinists who are call themselves four-point Calvinists. And, and where they struggle and, and, and what they can never concur with and agree with is the concept of limited atonement. So they would say, we believe in total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, perseverance of the same son, but we can't believe in limited atonement. And the reason being is it's so clear in the Bible <coughs> that Jesus died for everybody, that they cannot get over that hurdle and become a... Uh, five-point Calvinists. They're only a four-point Calvinist. So I want to consider that it's the third on the list, but the, the, the one that the four-point Calvinists leave out because they can't deal with it. Um, and this is what this verse here is saying in, in, in verse 9, uh, that he would taste death for every man. And, and every man means every single person that comes into the world. Um, now, I have excerpted uh, the following comments from uh, uh, a, a paper, a booklet by George Zeller. For whom did Christ die? The fence of unlimited atonement. So instead of limited atonement, limited atonement means Jesus only died for the elect, for, for certain people. And, and uh, uh, they'll also call it, speak of it in, in, in the vernacular of particular redemption. Uh, he was particular about who he would redeem. So he didn't redeem you, but he redeemed you. And so one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two. If you're one, you're out. If you're two, you're in. You know, that's kind of a very poor illustration of what it is, but um, that's particular redemption, okay? That's limited atonement. That he only died for the, for the elect, for a certain few. Well, Zeller, he, he, he makes this. He quotes a number of people. He says, this is a case, Hebrews 2.9. This is a case where those holding to a limited atonement. I, I, is everybody with me so far in limited atonement, what that speaks of? Okay. Uh, this is a case where those holding to a limited atonement are forced to retranslate. For example, in the Christian Counselor's New Testament by J. Adams, J. Adams, the counselor, who is a five-point Calvinist, uh, believes in the entire tulip. In his Christian Counselor's New Testament, J. Adams, a Reformed Christian, the passage is rendered this way, that he might taste death for all sorts of persons. So not for every man, but all kinds of different people. Housewives, bakers, eye doctors, uh, even some preachers, you know, all sorts of different people. It's not what it says. 
Zeller goes on and says, this is a case of amending the text in order to fit one's theology. Likewise, the New Geneva Study Bible says that, quote, every man, verse 9, refers to the many sons of verse 10, because the many sons would be the believers. This would mean that every man does not really mean every man, but it refers only to the elect. He asked the question, why do Reformed scholars insist upon this? <coughs> why? And then he answers the question. Because their theological system demands it. So this is eisegesis, reading into what it says instead of bringing out. The Greek scholar Dean Alford explains the true significance of this term. Uh, if it be asked why pantos, each, rather than panton, all, we may safely say that the singular brings out far more strongly than the plural word the applicability of Christ's death to each individual man. This is in the New Testament for English readers. Westcott agrees when he says Christ tasted death not only for all, but for each individual. So who are some of the proponents, defenders of the fact that Christ died for all? In and this is, again, from Zeller's booklet. In establishing any doctrine, it is what God says that counts. Let God be true, but every man a liar, Romans 3, 4. Having already established from the scriptures that upon Christ were laid the iniquities of all of us, it is of interest to consider what great and godly men of the past have said about this issue of the universal extent of the atonement. Norman F. Doughty, in his excellent book, The Death of Christ, lists over 70 of the church's leading teachers from the early centuries to the modern era who stood firmly for the doctrine that Christ died on behalf of all men, not the elect only. Here are some names on the list. Clement of Alexandria, Eusebius, Athanasius, Chrysostom, Augustine, Martin Luther, Hugh Latimer, Miles Coverdale, Thomas Cranmer, Philip Melanchthon, Archbishop Usher, you know, the 4,004 years of the Usher dating zone, Richard Baxter, John Newton, John Bunyan, Thomas Scott, Henry Alfred, Philip Schaff, Alfred Edersheim, the... Hebrew believer of the 19th century, H.C.G. Mool, W.H. Griffith Thomas, and A.T. Robertson. Now, some of these names may mean nothing to some of you, but these are, in church history, some, um, some big names. Um, the following quotes are of interest. All of the blood, and this is from Prosper, who died in 463 A.D. Although the blood of Christ be the ransom of the whole world, Yet they are excluded from its benefit, who being delighted with their captivity are unwilling to be redeemed by it. So what he's saying is that the death of Christ for the whole world, but some who are not willing to be redeemed don't benefit from his death. Um, next one is Hugh Latimer. He was a uh, martyr, a bishop and a martyr. In the uh, 1600s he was martyred. For Christ only and no man else merited remission justification, and eternal felicity. For as many as will believe the same, they that will not believe it shall not have it. For it is no more but believe and have. 
for Christ shed as much blood for Judas as he did for Peter. Peter believed it, <coughs> and therefore he was saved. Judas would not believe, and therefore he was con condemned, the fault being in him only and nobody else. Benedict Arishus, Christ died for all, yet notwithstanding all do not embrace the benefit of his death, they despise the offered grace. Archbishop Usher, we may safely conclude that the Lamb of God, offering himself a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, <coughs> intended by giving sufficient satisfaction to God's justice to make the nature of man which he assumed a fit subject for mercy and to prepare medicine for the sins of the whole world, which should be denied to none that intended to take the benefit of it. Died for the whole world. Go on to page three. James Morrison argues that the doctrine of limited atonement was never taught in the early centuries of church history. He says this, the doctrine of a propitiation for the elect alone, that's, that's limited atonement, is not yet above 1,400 years old. Such a doctrine was unheard of during the glorious first three centuries of the Christian era. Nay, it was not known for about 200 years after that. That surely is a striking fact and should make some men pause and ponder before they condemn. I think, says the illustrious Bishop Davenant, divine most intimately versed in ecclesiastical history and the writings of the fathers, quote, that it may be truly affirmed that before the dispute between Augustine and Pelagius, there was no question concerning the death of Christ, whether it was to be extended to all mankind or to be confined only to the elect. For the fathers, when speaking of the death of Christ, described it to us as undertaken and endured for the redemption of the human race. And not a word that I know of occurs among them of the exclusion of any person by the decree of God. They agree that is actually beneficial to those only who believe, yet they everywhere confess that Christ died in behalf of all mankind. And so he says it didn't show up until the 5th century with, with uh, Augustine. Davenport, Bishop Davenport, goes on to give some further details respecting the opinions of Augustine or Augustine. Quote, we assert, therefore, that Augustine never attempted to impugn that proposition of semi-Pelagians. Um, Pelagianism, Pelagius, it was a work salvation. Semi-Pelagian then would be a, a mixture of faith plus work. So Augustine, let me get back to the quote, um, neither did Augustine ever oppose as erroneous the proposition, uh, I got to back up. Augustine never attempted to impugn that proposition of the semi-Pelagians that Christ died for the whole human race. For neither did Augustine ever oppose as erroneous the proposition that Christ died for the redemption of the whole human race, nor did he ever acknowledge or defend as his own that Christ died not for all men, but for the predestinate alone. So he says Augustine never argued for that. He always, you know, so on. Augustine died in 429 A.D., 5th century. And up to this time, at least, there's not the slightest evidence 
that any Christian ever dreamed of a propitiation for the elect alone. Even after him, the doctrine of a limited propitiation was but slowly propagated and for long but, and for, and, and for long but partially received. More recent advocates of unlimited atonement are as follows. D.L. Moody, Albert Barnes, Ellis Schaefer, John Walford, Robert Leitner, William Newell, uh, R.C.H. Lenski, D. Edmund Haber, Robert Gromacki, E. Schuller English, R.E. Torrey, Charles Ryrie, all members of the Independent Fund Fundamental Church of America who have made unlimited atonement part and parcel of their doctrinal statement. Unlo unlimited atonement seems also to be a position of the uh, uh, General Association of Regular Baptists because the Regular Baptist Press published the original edition of Leitner's book, The Death Christ Died, which presents a strong case for a limited atonement, and also David Nettleton's book, Chosen to Salvation. Nettleton refers to, quote, the erroneous doctrine of limited atonement, close quote, and says that, quote, limited atonement is not a necessary corollary of the sovereign election of God. So he says, sovereign election of God, this is Nettleton now, and limited atonement don't go together, don't have to go together, is what he says. Uh, here are a few of the defenders of a limited atonement view. Burkhoff, Crawford, Cunningham, Eldersveld, Haldane, Hodge, Lloyd-Jones, John Murray, uh, Owen, Packer, Pink, Smeaton, Spurgeon, Stonehouse, and Warfield. Um, to this list, Zeller says, could be added John Gerstner, Gary Long, David Steele, Custis Thomas, W.E. Best, John MacArthur, and many others. All of that said, limited atonement is not in the Bible. It wasn't in church history for the first 400 years or so. Um, it was not around. It's clearly not in the Bible. Christ died for every person. Um, and so, you know, talking about the other four points of Calvinism was a whole nother discussion. But that is why you have a lot of Calvinists who will call themselves four-point Calvinists because they just cannot accept. The Bible's too clear that Christ died for everyone. Hebrews 2.9 is too clear. He tasted death for every man. Not all sorts of men. Every man. You had a question? No. And, and I don't want to go down this too far. You have, theoretically, in the Christian world, Calvinists and Armenianists. One, I, I think it's a false dichotomy. I'm neither. They do disagree on that part. Uh, yeah, oh yes. They de yeah. The Calvinists would say that Armenianists believe in a work salvation. And Armenianists would say that Calvinists, uh, the Calvinist God sends some people to heaven and some to hell. And, and that's a very simplification of the whole thing. But Calvinists claim that Armenians believe in, Armenianists believe in a work salvation. Well, that's not necessarily true. Um, and, and it's also not necessarily true, but we're getting too deep in this, um, that all Calvinists believe that God appoint, appoints some people to be saved and some people to be lost. Be, be, I don't know how far to go on this. Um, See, they will say that God, Calvinists, even five-point Calvinists, will say that God chooses who will be saved. That's who, He's sovereign. He can do what he wants and yada, yada, yada. Uh, but it, and so only those people who he chooses can be saved. 
everybody else won't be among the saved, but they choose not to accept God, and it's their choice that sends them to hell. God doesn't send them to hell. Now, there are Calvinists who say, well, that, you know, that's ridiculous. And so you get in then into the question of um, double predestination. And the double predestination people is that God predestined some to heaven and some to hell. But there are Calvinists who say we don't believe in double predestination. We, all, we believe, you know, and so you go down, you know, there's lots of roads to go down. And I don't want to go down these roads, but Armenianists, Armenians and, and Calvinists, never the twain shall meet, basically. So um, be that as it may. Now, but I can understand, I fully understand why four-point Calvinists can't understand, can't accept limited atonement. It's just not in the scripture. It's just not there. In the scripture as well as historically. That's what verse 9 says. He died for everyone. Now, look at verse 10. For it became him for whom are all things and by heart, whom are all things in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, it became him. Him is not Jesus here. Him is God. So it, 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 it became God. It became necessary on God's part. All things are of God, for whom are all things, and all things uh, by whom are all things. Everything comes from God. Everything exists by God. The end of Romans chapter uh, 11 says the exact same type of terminology. So it, it was necessi necessary that God, in order to bring many sons, and sons in, in, in here is, is the Greek word that has a much wider sense than, than man, men, the male species. It means everybody, men and women. So it became necessary then for who, who, who created things and, and keeps everything in order to bring many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, now, let's walk our way through. When you think of a captain, what do you think of? The leader. He's in charge. Whether it's the captain of the basketball team or the captain of a ship, he leads. He's in charge. Um, so God had to make Jesus uh, <clears throat> the captain of our salvation. Now, uh, well, it tells us how he's going to do all this in the last phrase, through sufferings. Now, and the ultimate suffering is death. Because as the leaders, he is the, you know, we get into 1 Corinthians 15, and Jesus is referred to as as the first fruits. You know anything about the, the festival of first fruits, which is coming up pretty soon. Purim is next. But anyway, um, it's, it's a down payment that there's a greater harvest coming. And in 1 Corinthians 15, when it talks about Jesus being the first fruits of the resurrection, because he resurrected, it's a guarantee that there's a greater resurrection to come. And it goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, and it says, he's the first fruits, then every man in his own order. 
See, there's a different, there's an order to the ultimate resurrection. The, the, the next group that will be resurrected, the first, let's go back to point one. Who is the first one to be resurrected? Jesus. He's the leader. Because he died, did he remain in the grave? God resurrected him. And he went where after that, ultimately after that? He ascended into heaven. What is the next group that will be resurrected? Us, Bible-believing children of God, Christians at the rapture. Yes. People who die, believers today during the church, are not resurrected. They go to meet the Lord, in the, you know, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But resurrection is when you get your new body. When Jesus was resurrected, he got a body, new body. He walked through walls. You know, he ascended up into heaven. My guess is when we get our body, which will be like him, we won't need to open that door. You will not need United Airlines to go to Israel. That's, you know, so on. Um, or LL, maybe that's a better analogy. But uh, anyway, but there's an order in the resurrection. We won't go through the entire order. But the whole, he, he is the captain. <clears throat> God had to... Um, who is, who, is the, who is the creator and the sustainer of everything in order to bring many people into glory had to first make the leader, the captain of their, those people going into glory, of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, was Jesus perfect? He never sinned. He was perfect. So what is perfect here does not mean without sin. You know, to make it means it's teleos, literally means complete. Jesus had he was to make him the captain of our salvation and to complete what he would do for us. When Jesus and it really wasn't complete, his the death part of it was complete. What was his final saying, phrase, words on the cross? It is finished. It's, it's, it's complete. It's, well, it's complete. It's, it, it's, it's over, yes, and that, but it's complete. I've done it. I've done what I've come to do, which is to die for the sins of the world and raising it. And so here perfect is teleos, complete, that God would bring to completion that which he sent Jesus to do that Jesus would become the leader, the captain of us who believe in him and, and get salvation, is what it's saying. It's not that he was made perfect. He was always perfect. He was without sin. He was the perfect lamb of God. Speaks of God's grace. Now, bringing many sons onto glory. Again, sons is a very generic word, generally used of the offspring of men. Well, are ladies all three of men? Yeah. <clears throat> and ultimately, God's grace will bring his children to heaven because of what Jesus has done. And Jesus is dying for our sins through his suffering, the death on the cross, and ultimately being resurrected was the down payment that there'll be more children of God to go to heaven. Psalm 73, 23, and 24. 
now he was bringing in um, in verse ten to bring many sons into glory. Glory here is a synonym for what? Heaven. Heaven. You know where you first find this is back in Psalm seventy-three. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. The writer of this psalm has just been agitated, exercised, persecuted, down, depressed. And then he, but he, 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 he sits up, as it were, in, in victory and says, nevertheless, I am continually with thee. And the emphasis is not an I am with thee, but you are with me, really. Uh, what he's saying is, I realize, God, that you are with me. This is the bigger picture again, if you will. Read all of Psalm 73 later. He, he's, he's, we may go a little bit long tonight. Go back to Psalm 73, uh, or I can just read it to you. Um, <clears throat> because in a sense, it, it's really, um, you know, uh, parallels what we were talking about earlier with, with getting the bigger picture. And Jesus endured the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before him. Um, verse 1 of Psalm 73, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped. I was envious at the foolish. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no bands in their debt, they don't have any problem in dying, it seems, and there's nothing that prevents them. Their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Meaning, I've got all these problems, I'm plagued. Therefore, pride compasses them about as a chain. I mean, they are just so lifted up with pride and, and, how, and so on. Uh, violence covers them as a garment. Uh, their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. I mean, this is, this is the, the cries of, woe is me. You know, look at these people. You Look at the wicked. They got everything. Death doesn't seem to bother them. You know, they're violent, and yet they have everything. They're corrupt, verse 8. They speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. They, they curse at God. They curse at man. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, how did God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? They're mocking God. Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. I've been so stupid to follow God and live a, live a religious, pure life. When the wicked and the evil prosper and they have everything, I mean, this guy is in dire straits. Right? Woe is me. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. I never should have decided to follow you, God. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I know, I thought to know this was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Surely did thou set them in slippery... So now he's refocused now. Okay? We'll go down uh, to verse um, 
Well, let's go. Well, I started. So, okay. 18. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places, thou cast them down in destruction. How are they brought into desolation? As in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. I was convicted. Hey, I'm wrong in my woe is me attitude. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee, God. He's speaking of God, God, you know, to God. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. I don't deserve it. I've been upset. I've been bitter. I've been wanting to be like the evil people. Why have I cleansed my heart and followed you? All I get is plagues and problems. Nevertheless, God, you've always been there with me. That's what he's saying. Nevertheless, I'm continually with thee. You, and, the, and the emphasis is not on the writer here. I mean, his attitude stunk. It's on God. Nevertheless, I'm continually with thee. Thou, thou God, has held me by my right hand. <clears throat> thou shalt guide, with me, guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. What's glory? God, you're always with me. I don't deserve it most of the time. But you will never leave me nor forsake me. And ultimately, you're going to take me to heaven. You're going to take me to glory. And when he started, when he went in the sanctuary, and when he started to reconsider and look at the bigger picture, and then he started to refocus and started to change his attitude and thoughts. Same with Jesus. Not that he had a bad attitude. That's not what I'm saying. Why could he endure the cross? For the joy that was set before him. That's why. Okay, I, I do want to move on in this. I really want to get two verses done, not just one. Okay, turn to the back of, pa of the page. Now, the great promise. Um, yes, we're going to glory. Romans chapter 8, glorification. Speaking to believers, we will be glorified. And you know the layout of Romans. You should know it. We've talked about it. Uh, those of us... All of us are condemned before a holy God. If we put our trust in Jesus, we are justified by grace through faith. God is then sanctifying us. The last part of Romans, he will glorify us. He will take us to heaven. That's the last part of Romans 8, I should say. Starting at around verse 17 to the end of chapter 8. So when you get to Romans 8.18, which is the glorification section, and glorification ties in with really taking the glory, if you will. We're going to get to heaven. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Isn't that what the psalmist just said? In Psalm 73? After he woke up? After he went in the sanctuary and refocused, hey, I'm going to glory. I'm not like the evil and so on. It's, it's all going to be worth. That's what it's saying here. The suffering of this world uh, are not worthy to be compared to the glory we shall have. Then verses 23 and 24. And not only they, but ourselves also. Which have the first, there's the first fruits. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. 
even we ourselves grown, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. So those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit, when we are saved in this age, every single saved person, child of God, has the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. Every single one. And that, and the Holy Spirit dwelling in, in us is the, is the down payment that there's, there's a better day even still coming, that he's going to take us to glory. We all have the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> we groan within ourselves now, right? That's the verse 23. What are we waiting for? The adoption. Now, we're going to close. We're, we're, I'll probably just read the last phrase real quickly. We're not going to look at 29 through 39. It talks about how secure we are in Jesus. But I want to I briefly talk to you about adoption because adoption is completely misunderstood from a biblical perspective. Um, Cheryl and I have adopted daughter. Maybe some of you have an adopted child. Um, and I've heard it, if I've heard it said once, I've heard it said many, many times. Well, not only are you born into God's family, born again, but God adopted you. He chose you. Have you heard that? We adopted Deborah. We chose her to be in our family after we would have taken anyone they gave to us. But anyway, we chose Deborah. So she was born, and we chose her to be in our family to be our daughter. And so you oftentimes hear this, and well, not only were you born into God's family, but God chose you. He adopted you. That is not adoption biblically. That's not what it is. Here is what it is. <clears throat> we, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan within ourselves. <clears throat> the older you get, the more you groan. Amen? Evan doesn't know what I'm talking about back there. You know, Dan hardly knows. But some of, the, some of the, you know, I don't want to go down the line with all of us, you know. You know, Bob knows very full well what I'm talking about here. But anyway, <clears throat> you know, the older we get, the more we groan because our body breaks out. So we, we're, and we're waiting for the adoption. He's talking to believers here. He's talking to children. Children of God are waiting for the adoption? Yeah. What's the adoption? He tells us. The redemption of our body. That's the adoption. It's not God choosing you to be in his family. It's the redemption of the body. <clears throat> I groan, you groan, we all groan. What's that little nursery to? No, I forget what it is. <clears throat> well, we'll make up a song like that. We're waiting for the adoption, for a new, I can't wait to get a new body. Come, Lord Jesus. Happens at the resurrection. Now, in that in mind, go to Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> See, adoption is literally sun-placed. S-O-N, placed. Or a child placed. Deborah, you could look at it from this vantage point, was placed 
to Cheryl and my family. But she was already a child. Adoption is a child placed. But where are we placed? We're already in the family. We're children. We are placed in heaven with a new body. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Christ, which are at Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Who is he speaking to? Believers, children of God, right? Grace be to you. Who is the you? Believers, children of God. Grace be to you in peace from God our Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us. Who is the us? Believers. That's all in focus here. With all, the spiritual, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us. Who's us? Believers. So who's chosen here? Believers. He has chosen believers in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. What has he chosen believers for in him? To be holy and blameless. That's what we're chosen for. Not to be in him, but we are in him and he has chosen us. In him we're chosen. How are we to live in him? Blameless, holy before him in love. Then verse 5. Having predestinated us. Who is the us? Believers. Unto the adoption of children. Is it adopted to be children? No. The adoption of children. These are people who are already children. Who are these people? Us. Believers. God has predestinated believers onto the adoption. What's the adoption? Every believer will one day get what? A new body. He's predestinated all of his children, every child, this is, every, every believer is predestinated, predestinated onto the adoption of children, of all his children, will one day have a body, new body, resurrected body. Adoption is a new body. And predestination is eternal security that God will put us in heaven one day we're not adopted to be children. It's the adoption of people who are already children by Jesus. We don't get our way into heaven by what we do, but he has done it for us according to the good pleasure of his will. One more passage quickly. Look at Colossians chapter 4 and 1 through 5 because it uses adoption again. Colossians chapter 4, 1 through 5. I'm sorry, I put down the Galatians. I'm saying, yeah, I can't even read. Galatians 4, thank you. 1 through 5. <clears throat> now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. The heir is the one who is the child of the king. He's going to get everything. Are we heirs with, of, of, with Christ? Yes. But we don't differ 
from the servant when we're a child, when we're young. But he's under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. He's taught by tutors and governors until the time appointed by the father. He's no longer a child, and then he'll get the fullness of his inheritance. Have we received the fullness of our inheritance yet? Yes. I'm glad. <laughs> so, <laughs> Even so we, believers, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption to be sons of sons. God sent Jesus to redeem us, that once we're redeemed, because we are children, sons, one day we will get the adoption. And the adoption is the new body. The adoption is one day God will place us in heaven with a new body. That's the adoption. It's not God chooses you to be in his family. You're already in his family. You're born into his family. And God will place you one day in heaven with a new body. That's the adoption. So many people get it wrong. So many people get it wrong. And it's sad. Um, yes? Um, but that, that's not the same as being grafted That's a whole different concept. Yeah. No, this is every child of God, every born-again believer, everybody one day will have a new, who's, who, are, who are saved, uh, will one day have a new body. And they'll, they'll, that's the adoption. To wit, what? We're groaning right now, waiting for the adoption. When God will place us into heaven, and he'll place us into heaven with what? New body, the resurrection. That's what the adoption is. He's, press, he's predestinated us, who? Ephesians 1, who? Believers onto the adoption of sons, of children. Because you are a child of God, you will be placed in heaven one day, you are predestinated to be placed in heaven one day with a new body. It's eternal security. There's a lot of ways we could look at it. So, and then the last phrase, real quick. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. He's our leader. Perfect means complete. Uh, through sufferings was by the means which our captain would get us to heaven. He led the way. He resurrected. We will follow ultimately in the resurrection. And the focus is on Jesus and what he has done. And we are eternally secure because he rose from the grave. We will rise from the grave one day because he got a new body. We will get a new body because he went to heaven. We will go to heaven as well. Right now, though, we groan. Waiting for that adoption. When God places us, his children, the adoption of sons, of children, when he places us in heaven. I can't wait for that day. Are the um, people in heaven dying also? No, no. It, well, no, because they're perfect. They, they, they probably have something temporary. There's no disembodied spirits. Um, 
God is the spirit, yes, but mankind seems always, so there's probably something temporary they have uh, right now it seems in heaven, but they don't have their resurrected body. That will happen in time. First the church, the old, you know, we've, we've talked about the order. So they're not groaning in heaven. They may be groaning at Bob's bad jokes. I groan all the time, it is, but, but that's about the only groaning that they do. Uh, but we groan because of our, the, the frailty of our bodies, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. We could have looked at Philippians and the, hope, the, the promise of a new body. So <coughs> lots of stuff in those two verses. Um, so, so, Okay, let's pray. We've got brownies. We've got hamantashen. Hamantashen is the, uh, uh, the common cookie used for Purim, which is coming up next week. It's got a filling. Do you know what the filling is? Apricot and whatever else filling. Brownies, there's some cookies I think I saw back there. Yes, something. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of food and coffee and drinks. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.